Welcome, class. Welcome. We are in week 13 of the course. We are on the part of the creed that mentions the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. Those are our two new phrases for the creed for this week. So we're slowing it down slightly. We only have a couple more phrases left, really. Um, and the life everlasting, amen, um, for the next time. So we really are getting down to it and we'll be able to recite the entire creed all at one shot. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. Let's say the creed together, adding those two, fra- two, fra- uh, two phrases. Forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. You ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. Excellent work. To have the phrases, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of body this week in the creed offers us a new opportunity, another opportunity to talk about our central topic here in our last third or fourth of the course, namely Jesus and namely the gospels and namely the books in the New Testament which reflect on Jesus, which is to say the entire New Testament. Okay, so in some ways we're just continuing topics and themes that we've looked at um, before we'll take a chance to loop back to some of the Gospels and in particular talk about this question of Jesus' death and resurrection. What did it actually mean? I think basically, I mean basic Christians, like if you just kind of grew up sort of around church and you went to youth group a little bit and you kind of did your thing and you show up in chapel and you know, you probably somewhat just basically know that like Jesus died and rose again and somehow that has something to do with the forgiveness of sins. Like somehow that has something to do with you being as often American, certain kinds of American Christianity puts it, being saved. But saved, like how? How saved exactly? How do you get saved? Like what does that mean? Saved from what? Presumably, and this is, this is a stunning fact about the Gospels that we shouldn't miss just based on over-familiarity with them. Presumably, God can deal with the world any way that God wants. Presumably, God can deal with the world through massive triumph and destruction, through robotic determinism, through all kinds of domination, through all kinds of mind and thought control, through all kinds of displays of power. Presumably, I'm just presuming, philosophically and theologically, everything possible is available to God. Okay? But, God chooses to deal with the world in Scripture and in our lives in a bit of a counterintuitive way. God chooses to deal with the world through sacrifice and through humility, through getting very, very, very low, as that chapter in Philippians puts it, even to the point of becoming a slave. You know, that language in the New Testament, every time in in your Bible when you read the word servant in, in the New Testament, the word is doulos, the word is actually slave, okay? Slavery, what a strange metaphor to use for thinking about what Jesus really becomes. Slavery, and what a horrible image, you know, having overcome a legacy of slavery that we still deal with. You know, like, why does the Bible use that imagery exactly to describe in Philippians 2 and in so many other places 
the role. You know, like when, when, when Paul, the author Paul, introduces himself in his letters, he introduces himself as, you know, I, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. How is it that we would enter an economy of slavery spiritually in order to like do this walk, do this thing that we do? How can we put ourselves in a position like that? How can that be God's way of dealing with the world, of having himself in the sense of the Trinity or God's son in that sense of the image of Jesus as God's son come down to earth and become a slave and be brutally humiliated in front of everyone? Why sacrifice at all? Such a strange, and this is why I think we've used this language these past few weeks of surprise, that God's way of dealing with the world through Jesus is surprising. It's paradoxical. I mean, what is that supposed to mean for us in our lives? It means that my personal quests or my, my corporate quests at triumph and domination and humiliating others that are just a natural part of growing up and trying to get ahead in the world, I mean, what does that mean? If I'm to follow Jesus and do as, as Jesus says poignantly in the Gospel of Mark, to take up my cross and follow him, how can I both like triumph over others and succeed and make lots of money and be cool and dominate, but then also at the same time be a sacrifice and take up Jesus' cross and put others ahead of myself and welcome children and welcome the weak. Like, how, do the, how is that supposed to work? It seems to grind against the grain of everything that I am. And so there's no pretense, I think, in the faith that it's, this is not a difficult message. It is a difficult message. It's so difficult that the Gospels, in fact, present Jesus' followers as essentially looking at him and saying, yeah, no, I don't think so. That's not a thing, right? In the book of John, when, G- when Jesus makes a very hard teaching about drinking his blood and eating his body, the text says that many people deserted him. In the book of Mark, which is maybe one of the most saddest, kind of brutal of the gospels in terms of the suffering theme, um, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm gonna go to die. I'm gonna be crucified. Surprise, this is, you know, you thought I was gonna, you know, no. And one of his disciples says, no, you're not. No, that's impossible. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Like, he sees, the, he sees the words of Satan coming out of somebody when somebody tries to deny the fact that he will die and be humiliated in this way. And then they say, oh, no, 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 Lord, you know, you can go to your death, whatever, whatever happens. I won't deny you, though. I'll be the one, right? I mean, we say this sometimes in, in great fits of faith, you know. Oh, Lord, even if my friends kind of fall away and deconvert and go out carousing on the weekend and whatever, like, I won't do that, not me. And Jesus' disciples say that. And Jesus says, oh no, you're going you're gonna to abandon me at my worst time. And they say, no, I'm not. He says, yes, you are. And when it comes down to the crucifixion, when Jesus is being arrested and beaten, his disciples run away. <laughs> and they do exactly as he has said. Total abandonment. These are the themes then that were being offered at Easter time, at Good Friday, of abandonment and darkness followed by an amazing triumph over death itself. And in Christian theology, Jesus' resurrection it's kind of like a down payment of sorts. In fact, the New Testament even uses this kind of language. It's like a down payment for us, a kind of like a guarantee or a promise for something that could come in your own future, in the creed, the resurrection of the body. If Jesus rises from the dead, then we can too. How would that happen though? Now, one strange thing to notice right at the start, the Old Testament, that first 75% of the Bible that we spent so long on, is surprisingly, from a Christian perspective at least, surprisingly quiet on the topic of the afterlife. You could read the Old Testament alone and not even be totally sure that there is an afterlife if you just read the Old Testament and nothing else. You might start to think about it at points, but you might not be totally sure. 
You might not see very many possibilities that anyone could rise from the dead for that matter. You have Elisha, uh, the prophet Elisha. He's thrown into a grave and his corpse resurrects somebody that it touches. And Elijah, I think, raises a widow's son from the dead. And there's, there's some resurrection stuff in the Elijah and Elisha stories in the books of First and Second Kings. So you do have that. You do have something of a ghost story in 1 Samuel chapter 28, when Samuel rises from the dead, Saul kind of conjures him up and they, they have this conversation. The text though has no little miniature essay on like where Samuel was or what happens after you die. You'd think that, it, you'd, you would think, I mean, I'm not trying to just push this point to the point of aggravation, but it's like, you'd think the Bible would bring up that topic sooner and would be clearer about it if it were important. Like, why doesn't God say to, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know, anybody, like, in the Torah or in any of the books, like, hey, if, you know, don't worry, those people who are doing bad things, they will earn a place in hell for that and will be punished eternally. But if you do the right thing, don't worry if you die, you'll go to heaven and be with God. Your body will be resurrected. That'd be such a simple thing to say. It would just take a couple sentences. No one says anything remotely like it in the Old Testament at all. In fact, you could even find a couple of places. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three comes to mind. There are a couple of Psalms where the authors are, you know, express direct skepticism about whether there is an afterlife at all. So like with themes like that, what are you supposed to think exactly? Even so, even given those things, we do have a couple of places in our textbook reading has, has a little run through of a couple of these. So, so do the reading and you'll see those. A couple of places in Hosea and in Isaiah and in some other places and in Daniel where you get maybe a sense that there is something like life after death in the Old Testament, that there is some hope for a resurrection, that there is some, something after death. But it's not a pervasive theme at all. So what's going on there? What's happening? How has the biblical story then prepared us for Jesus' stunning resurrection? Or, if it seems to come out of nowhere, how do we make sense of it? How do the Gospels themselves and then the other materials in the New Testament guide us as we head into Easter this weekend to think about this topic of death and resurrection? The Gospels all treat Jesus' resurrection differently, and throughout the New Testament, we get varying statements on the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. There's no one single statement in the New Testament, I think, that you can just point to and be like, this is the only and one and singular correct statement on this issue. You get instead a lot of them, and I, I take that as a Christian to be a model for my own search for spiritual meaning, that it's going to take time, that it's not just going to be like a quick slogan, I don't just get to read one gospel. We've got four gospels and they're all different from one another. And then we've got all this commentary on it. So I take that to be a cue. I take the canon of the Bible itself to be a cue in a sense structurally for how I read it. I read it through multiplicity. I read it through in repeated encounters. I read it through community. What about Mark? Okay, let's take these in the order of at least when scholars think they were written. Mark may be the earliest gospel. What, does, what do Jesus' death and resurrection mean in Mark? One odd thing about Mark is that there is no resurrection scene in Mark at all. Um, if you open Bible, uh, whatever Bible you have, we're using the NIV 2011 here in this class, Matthew, Mark, and you go to the end of Mark, there's a kind of ending in chapter 16, but then, I don't know if you can even see in the Bible I'm holding up here, there's a line and then there's material in italics. Jesus has a post-resurrection appearance in Mark, but actually, look, at, look down at the footnote, or actually it's not even in a footnote here. It's written, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. In other words, um, scholars 
as far back as we can excavate into the textual tradition, Jesus's post-resurrection appearance in Mark, where he says, oh no, you'll be able to drink poison and handle snakes and all that kind of stuff, and he appears to them and talks to them, that was added later, sometime after the authorship of the gospel itself, and it's not part of the original writing. Remember from our very first couple of weeks in class, this topic of textual criticism, which is not criticizing the text, but is rather a scholarly, archaeological, archaeological type quest to find the earliest manuscripts of the text, and we don't have those, and so we're constantly kind of working on that. So that's a topic that actually becomes relevant for our reading. How does the book of Mark actually end then? What's the ending of the book? It's a very apt kind of literary and theological ending given the themes that Mark had been pursuing. These women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body, a kind of burial ritual. They come to the tomb, and they're worried about who's going to roll away this stone that's covering the opening to it. They looked up and they saw the stone had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that would be the ending, probably the original ending to the book of Mark. A note of fear, actually, on Easter Sunday. I mean, apparently even fear has a place on Easter Sunday in that gospel tradition a kind of stunned fear that you come and see the tomb and it's empty and you think, what has happened? What could this possibly mean? And the women run away okay, to tell the disciples the message. If you want to save your life, Jesus and Mark suggests, I'm thinking in chapter 8 here, verse 34, if you want to save your life, Jesus says, you have to lose it. And that seems to be one of the key themes of Mark about the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. If you want to save it, you got to lose it. It's a paradox. It's mystical. It's counterintuitive. It has a theme of suffering. It's sacrificial. At the Last Supper, this meal Jesus celebrates with his disciples on the eve of his death, on presumably what Christians celebrate as Good Friday or the Passover, which is what they're celebrating, Jesus says um, that his death is a sacrifice that is given for many, like a new covenant. And in fact, all the synoptics, do you remember that term synoptic? Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're kind of similar in some ways one view synoptic. All the synoptics have that scene at the Last Supper where Jesus says that his, that his death is like a sacrifice. And he takes up a cup and says, this is my blood. That's a bizarre ritual to be drinking blood. I took communion at my church this past Sunday. You're like drinking blood? Like what is this, like a, like a, like a, like a Dracula thing? Like is this cannibalism? And in fact, some people accused early Christians of doing cannibalism because of this exact kind of imagery of drinking blood and of eating a body? What could that possibly mean? And Jesus doesn't even really unpack it in the moment. He just says, this is my body. It is broken for you and breaks it. And this is my blood of, of a new covenant. So we're taken back here, and this is one of the major themes that you have to know, to the Passover, to sacrificial themes having to do with the Passover. So you gotta think Passover, book of Exodus, they smear the blood on the doors so that God sees the blood passes over their house, does not kill the firstborn in their family. And you've got to think like book of Leviticus kind of stuff. You've got to think like animals being sacrificed and all kinds of atonement for sin kind of imagery. 
book of Leviticus, okay? So you could do worse on Good Friday, for instance, if you wanted to have a personal devotion, than to just really read Exodus chapter 12, the Passover story, and even to read the book of Leviticus, as boring as I know a lot of people find it to be, and just to meditate on all of these sacrifices and this blood, that is the imagery, okay? That's what we're talking about. What about the book of Matthew? What does what the book of Matthew have to say about the resurrection? Weirdly, not very much. In the book of Matthew, if you scan to the end and go find about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, he dies and then barely says or does anything after he rises from the dead. He does at least rise from the dead in Matthew and they do narrate it. And he comes to the disciples and he just says like, you know, go out and make disciples. It's the so-called great commission for Christians. Go out and make disciples even until the ends of the earth. Okay. So, okay, that's it. I died, I rose again, go make disciples of me. Like why, how, how is that supposed to happen? What does this mean that you just rose from the dead? Like we didn't expect that or maybe we did, I don't know, like it's crazy. What? He just doesn't say. He just says go out and make disciples. So if you only had the book of Matthew by itself and if you only had the book of Mark by itself, you'd be kind of like reeling a little bit like the women who ran afraid from the tomb, like not really knowing. Still, though, in Matthew, there's a very deep theological frame in the book that gives suggestions. It's a very deeply Jewish frame, okay? Jesus is the culmination of a lot of imagery that the author there brings from the Old Testament. Jesus is like David. He's like a new kind of David figure. He's like a new kind of Moses. You know, I mean, think of the um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest narrative teaching, his single longest sermon that he preaches, his, his, his most... Um, intense preaching moment, he goes up on a mountain or a hillside, let's say, and he starts talking to people. That should remind you, echoes, echoes, echoes from the Old Testament, should remind you of Moses going up on Mount Sinai. Do you get the mountain imagery? You go up on the mountain and you look down on your people and you proclaim law down to them. And Jesus engages with Torah themes from the mountain. You have heard it said, but I have said. Maybe I'll read a couple of these just to kind of get the flavor of it in Matthew chapters five through seven. You have heard it said, Jesus, this is chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's in the Torah. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But I tell you, um, oh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, take your property, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard, it said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Seems normal. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Imagine that charge. These are Jesus' words. I remember... Um, when I was in college, one of the biggest geopolitical events that happened was 9-11. I was, a, I, was a, I think I was a senior in college, junior, senior in college. Senior, I think it was the beginning of my senior year, actually, during 9-11, September 11, 2001. There was a lot of debate, you know, about what it meant to be a Christian in that time. Um, you know, especially vis-a-vis the rise of what seemed to be this militant Islam in the world. What do you do? How do you be a Christian? I remember watching, and I have this video clip. I've shown it to classes before. I haven't shown video clips in this class, but I'll just narrate it for you to not a great effect, maybe. 
um, there were these two guys debating each other. One was like a super you know, conservative talk show host guy and the other guy was like a super challenger kind of guy all over the place. And they were debating about Islam and all this kind of stuff and how should we deal with it and what should we do and is it really a threat and how many of these terrorists are there actually? And one of the, and one of the guys says to the other one, th- the guest on the show says, how do you think Jesus would deal with this? And the host is like, the, the host was totally flustered. Like, uh, you know, I don't know what, are you a Christian? I didn't think you were a Christian. He's like, oh no, I am a Christian. He's like, are you a Christian? He's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's like, okay, how, how do you think Jesus would deal with this? Guy says, I don't know, I'm not Jesus. You know, I don't have his powers. I don't, I don't know, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know. Now, and, the, and the host quotes the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus said, love your enemies. Do you love your enemies? Do you love Al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization? And the host says, look, I love them in the sense that I want to kill them. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just, it just raises like how counterintuitive and strange this is, right? And then, and then he gets mocked for that. Like, oh yeah, I'm sure that's what Jesus had in mind. Like, you love people while murdering them. Like, that's kind of what, what he would do, right? It just shows you how strange it is, how strange the paradox is. Love your enemies, you know? This is where, of course, the Christian pacifist tradition a long and venerable tradition, at least among Quakers and some other groups, you know, draws its pacifist message. Love your enemies. Can you love your enemies and serve in the military and also kill your enemies? A lot of my family members and extended family are in the military. I respect them tremendously. I'm not a pacifist personally, theologically or politically, I don't think. So, but I I feel challenged by it though, because Jesus says, love your enemies. Like, what is that? What can that possibly mean? Okay. Anyway, anyway, Jesus is on the mountain preaching Torah just like Moses did, but he's like a better Moses. And he, and, and he comes in with his own message. And there are all kinds of things like this. So Matthew's not without meaning just because Jesus doesn't do a lot after the resurrection. It has a deeply Jewish frame, beginning with the genealogy at the beginning that connects Jesus to, not only to King David and so on, but all the way back um, to Abraham. Okay. He takes the cup in the book of Matthew at the Last Supper scene and says all the things that Mark says he says, but there's an addition in Matthew that gives it a stronger callback to the book of Exodus. He says, this is my, you know, sacrifice, which is given for many, a new covenant, and that it's also, quote, for the forgiveness of sins, he says in Matthew, for the forgiveness of sins, okay? So we get the, th- we get the very words of our creed today, for the forgiveness of sins, How does it forgive sin? Well, again, we're all the way back to the books of Exodus and we're back to the books of Leviticus. We're not really told exactly how the sacrificial system forgives sins, just that God requires it, that it requires some kind of serious sacrifice, that it's not just free and that it's not for nothing, but that it's it's painful. It involves blood. Luke, the Gospel of Luke is much longer, has a much longer post-resurrection appearance um, and Jesus, there's this recognition issue in Luke. The disciples see Jesus, a person that they knew their whole, you know, for a while apparently, and they don't recognize him. They only recognize him when he breaks bread in the moment of that last supper kind of communion. Then their eyes are opened. So it's very strange. It's like, how is it that we cannot recognize Jesus then in his post-resurrection body unless he's revealed to us in some way? It's not just like a natural thing. Like, oh, James or Ruth or Jamie or Michael, you just, you, you, were de- you were alive, but now you were dead and now you just look just like you did. Yay, you know, like uh, you're back. It's not quite like that for Jesus in the book of Luke, at least. He's back, but he's like some kind of other, he's himself, but at the same time, something else. It's a little confusing. Um, as we know, the book of Luke has the same author as the book of Acts, presumably. And really a lot of the themes get punted into Acts 
in terms of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about last week and some other things. I want to read to you from a sermon that's given very early in the book of Acts by an individual named Peter. Peter's one of Jesus' earliest, strongest disciples who preaches after they receive the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues and they do all this stuff. Peter preaches a long sermon and here's kind of how the sermon ends, okay? And here we'll hear, maybe we'll hear some of the themes that Luke wants to drive home about who Jesus is. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day in Jerusalem. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. 2 Samuel 7, he's referring to that, that thing. Seeing what was to come, he spoke, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. What is Peter referring to here? Did David actually say that? Well, he's referring to the Psalms tradition, wherein there are allusions to this idea that you will not let your Holy One see decay, which now Peter's interpreting by this magnificent act of creative retrospective reading as being actually about Jesus. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Do you hear some of the words of the creed in there? Exalted to the right hand, seated at the right hand of the Father. For David did not ascend to heaven. Okay, is the quote here. Therefore, verse 36 of Acts chapter two, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So we have that theme of the Mashiach, remember that idea, the anointed one, the kind of leader in the Davidic way, and there's a lot of Davidic language. And then we have this title, Lord, which is one of the earliest Christian proclamations. This is what you can say as a Christian. You want to remind yourself that you're a Christian? Read the Sermon on the Mount and repeat this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not me, not people in this world, not political authorities, not my views about this or that thing not my friends, not my video games. Jesus is Lord, okay? So here you see at this early sermon, Peter preaching that message. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the ruler, not Caesar. We know that those themes of Roman imperial rule were, were also very important during that time as, as, you know, as a civil discourse. And so Peter's proclaiming something very different. Jesus is Lord. What about the book of John? Okay, the book of John has maybe the longest set of post-resurrection appearances and the most explicit imagery about Jesus describing various aspects of himself. Okay. Um, it's in fact two full chapters, chapters 20 and 21. I'll just turn to it and look at a couple of things. Still though, you have misrecognition themes like in the book of Luke where the disciples don't quite recognize Jesus right away. They don't know exactly who he is. He seems to have some different kind of body. He does have a body, definitely. The resurrection of the body. The creed does not have Christians repeating the resurrection of the soul. The idea like that you die, but that this whole world is basically going to hell in a handbasket. My body's ugly. We all have our problems, whatever. I can't wait to get rid of this clay shell in which my true soul resides and just throw it off into some kind of fire and some ethereal, angelic-like inner wispy being of mine will go off and be with God forever. That is actually not a core Christian teaching. In fact, that is a heretical teaching on, deep, on orthodox Christian terms. Christian, Christianity teaches that we have a soul, but that you have a body and that your body is actually going with you. I don't want my body to go with me. I don't like my body. I, you know, I've got like a torn rotator cuff right now. I might have a hernia that I have to have surgery on. You know, I'm tired all the time. I'm approaching middle age. 
I, you know, I don't want to have a body. Like, what about the body? You know, let's get rid of the body. Let's do the soul, you know? No, actually, Christianity teaches that like Jesus, this is why I said Jesus is like a down payment then, we're going to get resurrected too. We follow in his footsteps. If we're faithful as he was faithful, we follow him into this movement. The body will be resurrected. This has implications for our world. This means, no, we can't just throw our world away. If God actually came down, as the book of John says in John chapter 1, and the word became flesh, the logos, the creative energy of God, the wisdom of God that creates the universe becomes material, like wood and blood and bone, matter, then that means that the world matters, right? That means that our trees and our bodies and our animals and our children and our hair and the way we treat ourselves and what we do with our bodies, it all matters and it matters deeply. I suppose, back to one of the original questions, if God can just deal with the world any way that God wants, God could have had a totally immaterial type of salvation. This is not what was chosen. And as a person of faith, I submit to it. God chose the material world as the vehicle of salvation. That's a big deal. I mean, you can just let your mind just sort of like expand throughout the week thinking about that at that. What does it mean that God chose a material body in which to save the world? God chose the body of a woman, Mary, in which to have a baby that would be Jesus. God is born through a womb, you know? I mean, that's pretty radical stuff and it's very strange especially if we're attuned to thinking about this idea of a God. Do you remember our discussion way back in like week two? Like, what is a God exactly? What should a God be like? Should a God be material? Shouldn't gods like fly around in the sky and not really care that much about this stuff? This is apparently a God who cares about this stuff. So John has a lot of that kind of imagery. You also have famous Doubting Thomas character. It's on the cover of our textbook, a painting by Caravaggio of of Thomas poking his finger weirdly, grossly into Jesus' wound. Such a gross picture. Jesus invites the disciples to see his wounds. And Thomas, this is uh, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, um, uh, a twin, so apparently he's a twin, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, not gonna keep Jesus out, and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay. So so Thomas's doubt, you know, which I think, you know, don't be a doubting Thomas, kind of a phrase you could use to describe like, oh, don't doubt, just believe. Actually, Thomas isn't quite treated that way by Jesus. Not quite. You know, he says, I don't, I'm not gonna believe it until I see it. And Jesus doesn't say, well, too bad for you. I guess you'll go flipping headlong into hell in that case. No. Jesus comes through a locked door to encounter Thomas, saying, you wanted to see this thing? Here it is. And when Thomas touches, he makes a proclamation that's one of the most stunning proclamations in all of the Bible, to call Jesus God, 
my Lord and my God. He makes the early Christian proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And even not just like Jesus is ruler, like better than Caesar, but just like, you know, something else. He also calls Jesus God. Now we have like this Trinitarian thing coming in. So this occasion of doubt then in the book of John becomes the stage for one of the most stunning confessions about Jesus in the Gospels. And I presume, I presume, God help me, that in my own doubt and that in your doubt too, Jesus can come through locked doors and be just that powerful and evoke that kind of confession. But Thomas is kind of a blunt and honest guy, you know? He just says, I don't know, I don't know if I can believe this. There's a kind of radical honesty there then that Jesus honors with a touch, which becomes then a proclamation. So what are the major themes here that we've been tracking? Sacrifice, think the Passover and Leviticus. Suffering in the book of Mark. Vicarious suffering even is, is, is a phrase that, that Christians might use. Suffering on behalf of someone else. We saw this and we didn't really talk very much about it in the book of Isaiah, particularly in, in, this, in, in the second half of Isaiah, where we have a character who's beaten, who's whipped and bruised and marred. Isaiah 53 is very important on Easter for Christians. But he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. What happens when you get punished when you do something wrong? We call that justice. You, you know, commit bribes and financial, you know, crimes and things like that. Commit a murder, commit a robbery. You go to jail. We don't say that you're suffering unjustly and, oh, I hope that, you know, redounds to the world with great redemption. That's just your punishment. There's a legal code for that. But what if you suffer and you're innocent? What if you spend 40 years in prison and you're abused in prison, but it turns out DNA evidence exonerates you and you never did the crime at all? Is that just meaningless? In, the, in, the, in Isaiah's images of the servant, the slave really, the evid who suffers, it's not meaningless. That suffering of the innocent victim means not just a little bit, it means a lot. It has like exponential nuclear meaning spiritually. The idea of someone who suffers, who's innocent. Jesus then is a sacrificial lamb. He's the Passover lamb. He's all those things. He's also an innocent victim. He's someone who's punished and killed and has done no wrong. In Christian proclamation, Jesus is sinless. If you suffer that badly and are killed, but you've done nothing wrong, there's meaning that just like explodes out of that in this kind of spiritual economy. So you have vicarious suffering, and we also have themes of a new covenant, a new covenant. Think Abraham, okay? So sacrifice, think Exodus and Leviticus. Suffering, think Isaiah. And covenant, themes of covenant, think back to Abraham. In fact, there's a book in the Bible that I wanted to cover last week, and I just didn't, didn't get, really get a chance to talk about it, called Romans, the book of Romans, a very, very long and very complex book that has a callback to Abraham that I think is really important to think about in terms of the Christian message. And so I'll, I'll go into that with our time remaining, maybe touch on a couple of other things if we can. Okay. The book of Romans is a long and very complex book. Okay. Um, I, I, put a, I put a link on the course page from last week and you can look and watch a video of a New Testament scholar talking about it a little bit more. Paul, the Apostle Paul wants to go to Rome, this, like Rome in Italy. He wants to go there. And then from there, he actually wants to go to Spain. He wants to be a missionary to preach the gospel in Spain and all of the place. We actually don't know if Paul made it to Spain, but Rome was to be like a base, like a home base for him to reach out even further west in the Mediterranean. But for Paul, something has gone wrong in his former base at Antioch in the east. Conflict has arisen. He needs a new base 
Antioch used to be the base. But Rome is also a problem as a base because Christians are fighting. Jews are fighting each other. There's infighting in the community. Okay. Why? Well, there probably were a bunch of disparate house churches, not like one single church, but a lot of different small groups kind of thing. And they probably had conflicts about, you know, should Gentiles, that is non-Jews, have to follow the same rules that Jews followed regarding food and drink, circumcision, holy days, things like that. These were major markers of differences between Jews and other people. But what if they're all Christians? Should the Gentiles have to do that stuff too then to become Christians or do they have some other kind of way? The letter that Paul writes then to this community seems to say, look, here is the bigger picture. Here's the big narrative. It includes both Jews and Gentiles. Indeed, it includes everybody in the whole world. And he's writing this stuff probably in the mid-50s AD in a context in which a Roman emperor named Claudius had actually kicked Jews out of Rome because of this very conflict. So the conflict was so bad, Claudius emperor is just like, look, you guys, get out of here. Just get out. Jews, get out. I just can't even, I just can't do this, okay? So he kicks them out. So there might have been uh, a times then when, when, when after Claudius died that Jews were allowed to come back into the city after the conflict, but there was probably resentment. I mean, you can imagine the kind of resentment they caused this conflict. There were, maybe were, there were even some deaths involved. It's hard to say. They may have been despised. There might have been anti-Jewish feelings, even among Gentile Christians. So what is the solution to all this? For Paul in this complex letter, it's hard to summarize in a sentence, but Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. We all come together under Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles, maybe in a sense for different reasons, but really in the end for one reason. Because God has been faithful to Israel through Jesus. The righteousness of God is a major theme. Okay? And really, Romans chapter 4 takes us into one aspect of this. There's so many different ways. Romans chapter 4 makes a famous quote, one that we'll leave you with here today. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What did Abraham learn? Did Abraham learn anything? Can we learn anything from Abraham? Remember him? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, this is a complex word in Paul's corpus, it probably means something like observance of the Jewish law and really all kinds of efforts to do the right things so that God you know, knows that you're following the system and doing what you're supposed to be doing. If he was justified that way, he had something to brag about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Such a major moment back in, back in the book of Genesis. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham had been promised over and over again that he would have a son. You'll have the son, you'll have the son. And Abraham's like, it doesn't look like I'm having the son. But he just believes. He trusts God. And this faith that Abraham shows is then a model for Christians now. I think we'd be wrong to think of this faith, as we've brought up many times, and some of our panelists have brought up this semester, as just like mere mental assent to an idea. Like, if I can just believe this quick thing, I'll slip into some kind of new consciousness. It's maybe something a little harder than that and a little more complex, even as it's a simple concept. A life of faithfulness, the kind of faithfulness, in fact, Paul suggests, that Jesus showed before God, that kind of life. If you do that, you're living the Abraham life. You're walking the Abraham journey. You believe God and it's credited as righteousness. And Paul seems to suggest, look, this is something that Christians can rally behind, the figure of Abraham. He's a spiritual father, both for Jews and for Gentiles. So much more here, as always, that we could talk about and we'll continue to unfold some of these themes um, next week in our final week of the class.